Here's to courageous pioneers who understand a legacy is multifaceted. Welcome to our Legacy Planning Podcast, a podcast for leaders and visionaries of all ages. Whether you are an independent entrepreneur or someone who is part of a family business, you too can leave something of value behind for a greater purpose. Perhaps your legacy will improve workplace cultures, seize authentic moments, or inspire others with your talent. Your host, Angelina Carlton, is the founder of Design Your Legacy, a boutique advisory firm based in Beverly Hills, California. She is a mentor and coach to leaders like you and has contributed to Alliance, a philanthropy magazine, as well as to women in family business. She has been recognized by Los Angeles Biz as an LA woman of influence, as well as by World HRD Congress for her work. Remember, you deserve great coaching because your legacy is worth completing. Good morning. My name is Angelina Carlton. I'm a legacy planner with a boutique coaching and advisory firm based out of Beverly Hills. In this legacy series, I have the opportunity to talk with various guests about how they are exploring the journey of achieving their legacy. I hope that these success stories will inspire you. This morning, I have the privilege to chat with Ronnie Mena. He is the director of TBM, a family-owned ICT business, which stands for Information, Communications, and Technology, based out of Nairobi, Kenya. And he is a next-gen who has made it his mission to help steer their business through the current succession phase. Welcome, Ronnie. Thank you. Glad to be here. So how is it in Kenya? How is the weather and how is business? So, well, at, uh, at present, um, I believe it's happening to all businesses across uh, the globe. We all being um, challenged by the COVID season that has just extended. You know, I, I remember at about the same time last year when it just became uh, a global pandemic. And we all thought it would be a couple of months. I mean, at some point we were hoping it would be maximum three months. Um, and here we are from February last year, at least for Kenya, when we went under lockdown okay. we are in the middle of May. So, but we've made it. I think I need to recognize that uh, as a technology business, we are in one of the least affected industries. Fortunately so. Absolutely. So, because people need, yeah. to, they need their servers, they need their laptops. Exactly. They, they need, need their they need, uh, data storage. Exactly. Um, the fact that they're working remotely, they need cybersecurity to allow staff who were not previously working and accessing critical company data from home to be able to access it. So, so yeah, the whole, I mean, look at what we're doing here. I mean, we're, we're enjoying the, yeah, we're enjoying the, 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 the benefits of virtual, yes. yeah, virtual meeting. Yeah. Right. And the many benefits of technology. So your yeah. background is you were what straight out of high school. There was kind of uh, like a, a year or six to 12 months where your dad said, here's an opportunity for you. And then your future began. Yes. So I think in the European and maybe Western states, they call it a gap year. Okay. Um, and it, it was a gap year that was by luck. There were some challenges going on between one university intake and the next year. So yes, that one year 
I got my first um, full ingrained education about technology. Okay. And I managed to go back into college. Um, when you finish high school here, you normally decide whether you're going to college to do a, a one-year or two-year course or go to university to do your normal three-year or four-year course. Okay. So because it was clear that we'd have one year, I went to, to college to do a one-year um, diploma in um, information management systems, which got me excited about technology. Okay. And, 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 and yes, the reason it was of importance is because my dad was running a technology business at the same time. Okay. So uh, coincidence, coincidence that this is the course you're doing and he's practically setting up a business that will sell technology. So is this something that you wanted to do in your gap year or was this like dad cracking the whip? I, I, I actually think it was not very clear in my mind then okay. that I'm going to be uh, doing technology. So, um, but I was given a choice. I was told either you go and do uh, one year in accounting. Um, my background then, I had some uh, strengths that were leaning towards doing accounting or the only other course in that college was to do uh, the computer. So I think between the two, I felt, mm, okay, if I have to, I'll take the technology uh, course. Uh, good, good. And, and what a wonderful, ben uh, what wonderful benefit and opportunity it's been um, in your journey from what I've gathered thus far. And so the, your father is the founder then of the business. Is that correct? Yes. 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 And, and do you want to speak at all into his story of what it was uh, when he decided to build it? Because sometimes these stories are rich with details of <laughs> yes, bringing I, I, it I, to I, life. Definitely. Um, so th this was his second business, this, this current company. It's called TBM, Trans Business Machines in Pool. It was his second business in the whole um, technological uh, business machines space. So his first business before that was a partnership and it had, it had lasted for over 10 years. It was a partnership with uh, former colleagues. So his background is when he came into the capital city of Kenya, Nairobi, um, he came as a village boy. He grew up in the village and the village is literally 70 kilometers from here. And when he had finished his high school, he also did this discussion with his mom and dad. And he said, you know, maybe I should go look for greener pastures in the big city. And they said, why? Well, why not? I mean, uh, you've educated yourself keenly until high school. If you remain behind here at home in the village, you're more than likely going to end up supporting us in the little farm we have here okay. or doing something that might not have really looked as having real big potential, right? So, so he moved um, alone from his entire siblings. I think he was the only one who came to Nairobi. Others left and went to other cities. Now, Nairobi was the capital city and still is the capital city. And it's quite a bustling so, city. It is. 
it is. When you, when you look at the region, um, Kenya is part of East Africa. In East Africa, you've got like um, seven countries. Nairobi is probably your most dominant urban center, right? So it is a, it is a big city. It has a large commercial base and um, it has a large commercial base. And yes, it, it, it can be overwhelming, I guess, if you come from a small village. Um, but he took that challenge. Mm -hmm. And um, then he came to the city. He knew, first of all, that he was not ready to enter the job market. So he joined a local technical college. Okay. Um, we normally refer to them as technicons. And he started studying on electrical engineering. And I just and want to speak into a moment that that is not just a leap of faith, but it's also a change of cultures from a rural environment to a cosmopolitan, bustling city. Yes, he really exactly. had to trust himself. Yes. 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 In terms of in, and by the way, the other big thing that was happening, this is the late 60s. Um, the British who had colonized Kenya for the previous 50 odd years um, had just given independence four years ago because he came into Nairobi about 1967, 1968. Kenya had just gained their independence in 1963 from British colonial rule. So, so lots of moving parts. Lots of moving parts, a lot of excitement, lots of uh, the promise of hope, you know, because that's what politicians fought for when they were fighting for independence, they were more or less saying, we want to be our own nation. We want to have our own identity. And mm -hmm. uh, I think that also permeated to the average citizen. So the average citizen, like, like you're saying, asked himself or herself, so I'm here, I live in a village, but it's a big city that was definitely run by the, 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 the British, maybe mm -hmm. because now they have left Okay. And they have handed over power. Maybe okay. there is something there for me to go and uh, explore. Sure. So, so there was a lot of what people call rural to urban migration. Sure. Right? And, and, yeah. and so th there's a change of not just lifestyle, but also a change to adapt and mindset. Totally. Yeah. Um, one of the, you mentioned mindsets. You, if you come from the village, you've, you've grown around one community. Now, in Kenya, we have over uh, 50 different tribes. So you can imagine, like you're saying, he probably had only met up until that point one or two different communities in his life. So when you then decide, I'm leaving the village, I'm coming to the capital city, and then here you find everybody. You find British, you find Indians, you find over 20 different other communities. Yes. As you're saying, it, 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 it does take uh, a concerted effort to really adapt. Yeah, it must have um, been one of the best times of his life, I would imagine, but also scary in the sense of, you know, here we go. <laughs> I, I, actually, I actually think the scariness or the scary part is probably what brings out that real excitement, that real commitment that I have to make this work, right? Absolutely. And I, and that, and the other thing you say, as you say, in the village, everything is usually very small. You know, the number of cars, you can probably count them on one hand. They are five, they are 10. 
um, the number of dwellings. When you drive into Nairobi, I'm sure the first thing you're like, so many people, so many buildings, so many cars. So um, I, I, I think there was excitement with that decision, great excitement. Um, and of course, hope, like, like, like we said, if, if, if you do decide to remove yourself and immerse yourself in a totally, completely new environment, uh, you have to be the adventurous type. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, <laughs> you have to be keen to look for challenges, you know, because it will be a challenge. Absolutely. Um, that's, that's like a, uh, in America, we would say somebody left their backyard to go to the big city. And so they're no longer within the security or the comfort of what is familiar. They're like dropped in the center of New York City or Los Angeles and, and they're going to yeah. live life fully, carpe diem. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, so yeah, so he, he moved into Nairobi in the late 60s. He started education. He went into a technical college. He did his electrical engineering. And as fate may have it, um, an American company, IBM. Um, IBM is over 100 years, by the way. I think, uh, if I'm not wrong, they celebrated 100 years in 2010, 2011. So they're about 110 right now. IBM was, at that point, a business that was present in Nairobi. Um, and I believe just because of the transition of British rule to uh, independent Kenyan rule, um, there was now that whole let's, let's look for talent, local talent that we can bring in, yes. train on how to, yeah, train on how to sell and maintain um, the, the, the machines that IBM sold then. Absolutely. Um, and they must. I'm sorry, they must have also seen the opportunity coming on the horizon that with the shifts in the 70s and the 60s yes. that, yeah, that things are opening up, people are going to come forward and want to capture the opportunity. Yes. Please go ahead. Exactly. Um, so, yes, the, 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 the beauty of multinational companies is that I think given their variety of uh, exposure in multiple markets, what you're saying is true. They must have seen, because of the change of uh, governance, um, we also should change the way we run our operations in this country. Okay. We must bring on board local talent. Um, and also what happened thereafter, uh, so he worked for them throughout the early 70s to the late 70s. Um, and then the decision came again by... IBM, who we call Big Blue, to disinvest from running their own office in the country. And I, I gather at that time, historically, it was, it was a decision about they couldn't manage offices across the world, mm -hmm. right? If you, if you think that they were from an American um, origin company, and they had actually put an office in a small little East African nation like Kenya, okay. they, must have had, they must have had hundreds of offices around the world. Um, so by the late 70s, strategy changed and they said, let's move back to like the major hubs and let's leave the smaller countries, smaller economies. And we're not going to leave and, and forget about the whole uh, effort around 
the market they had. Okay. We're going to leave and, and set up local companies, local okay. partners, right? Okay. Um, so, so the opportunity then was him and his fellow employees came together, formed a local business. Okay. And by the time IBM had pulled out of Nairobi in the late 70s, um, they were given what is known as a partnership. Okay. Uh, which is basically the right, the right to resell or the right to maintain the equipment that was already being used within the local market. So they needed right. the talent, absolutely, to expand exactly. and to capture the markets. Yes. So, so and that's how he formed the first um, major business with his fellow colleagues. And, and that business was called MBC. Um, and they did a good job. They ran the business throughout the 80s. Um, the business grew. They, they actually had, uh, I think he says when they started, there were probably not more than 10 people in terms of staff. Okay. But, by, but by the time they had gone through 10 years, they were, they were an entity that had employed closer to 50, 80 people. Right. Um, and, and he was the managing director. So, so he was the yeah. Go ahead, please, please. So what I was just going to say, what a journey. Well, yeah, for him, I think um, if I was to pick the lessons he shares about that period. One, he kept a very close relationship with IBM, the company. Okay. Right. They, they, they employed him. They put it, took him on board. They trained him and he worked for them for a period. Now he was running a business with other partners but they were very closely aligned to IBM. So they, they focused on selling IBM solutions. They focused on repairing IBM equipment. Um, so whatever it is, whatever that IBM introduced as a product into the market, they continued to sell and introduce the new products and support existing products. So, and their business grew, like I've said, they employed more people and um, until the late 80s when they reached a point of, um, and maybe this happens sometimes for successful entities, they reached a point of disagreement. Yes, yes. In the, in the seasons of a business, and, sure. In the seasons of a business. And uh, I think he says there were about five co-owners co um, and and uh, he was one of the main ones because he was someone and executives. Okay. They, they simply came in for board meetings and could see the good revenue and the good work the business was doing. But he was the executive. He was the managing partner. And when they felt that they, the business was big enough, I think what he claims, he told him, the business is big enough, it can run itself. Okay. Right. You should you should jump out and come back, and sit behind the scenes like us. Okay. Right. Um, and and be a non-executive. Let's employ. <laughs> let's employ other people. Okay. Okay. I wonder how that sat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so but he at, at that point he felt no he was at the prime of his career he was barely in his uh, mid forties he was enjoying himself. I think there were other benefits of being an executive partner. He used to travel a lot. I think I remember that as well in the, in the 80s. 
every year he had two international trips. He was either going to head office to talk to IBM in the US, or he was taking high-end clients for visits to see certain sites in Europe. So, you know, yeah, it always got to me like, wow, man, I, this is the life, you know? And you, you used to escort him to the airport and would stand by and look at these planes leaving and you're like, wow, that's the way to travel out and go far away to wherever. And we, as a child, you're like, okay, he's just leaving. Um, so, so, so there he is maintaining client relationships. And as a child, you get to see the adventure, the adventurous world that he gets to step into and, and live. But at the same yes. time, now the politics come in. Now the politics come in and, dun, dun, dun. Uh, and, and you're, you're, you're told to choose. You're told to choose. You're told to choose. Either, either you accept the proposition, then you must step, take a step back and become a non-executive like the rest of us. Okay. And you leave the day-to-day -day running and the day-to-day -day operations to somebody that we can hire or we can buy out. You know, and mm. because at that point they feel, you know, the business is doing so well. Right. Your equivalent percentage is not much. We'll pay you your shares and you can, if you don't want, you can leave. So I guess he opted for the second option and he said, no problem. I, I think because I, I want to work every day, um, I let me take whatever you consider my fair share and let me move on and do something else. So, and that's how in came to be that in 1991 he now had to set up this current business um and yes as you're saying I, maybe it's a um an impact of his initial business he never lost controlling stake of his business yeah I, to, right? oh I I was just going to add that it's interesting about success because when somebody gets to a certain level of success, it can be very hard for them to go backwards in life because they know how big it can be. And then you ask mm. them to shrink and it's not within their mindset anymore because they know that there's more. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I think that that was probably the tipping point for him to say, you guys think this is enough or you think this is uh, sufficient. You don't know anything else. You don't know anything yet. This, this, this could be even 10 times bigger <clears throat> um, with the right leadership or if you had just allowed me to continue because um, you're probably right. I think the whole traveling had given him this whole expectation. You know, um, they say one of the best educators is just moving around. Is travel. When you travel, you yes. know, when you travel and you go and you see a business that is modeled in your same type, but you look at this business and you can see it 20, 30, 40 times bigger than yours. Yes, you'd argue it's economies of scale. You know, this is a small Kenyan economy and that is a big British economy. But still, you look at it and you think there's something there because it means technology is, a, is like a heartbeat of any economy, right? Uh, and the world, a, right? And the world, the world opened up to him. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I think he, he, he was pushed out, but I don't think he regrets being pushed out. You know, like, like, you're, like you're saying, it, it, it was not out of his choice that he said, let me leave. Mm -hmm. It was out of the circumstances of politics. But if, you, if he was to be asked today, 30 years later, I don't think he has any regrets, you know.
I'm sure they had um, a wonderful training program. And it's interesting because I think many times the, the rise to success is talked about, but the uneven parts of how do we manage the, the buyouts and the politics, that isn't covered oftentimes enough to understand that, you know, here it comes and it's going to come at some point when we'll be tested. You will be tested. You will be tested. Um, so yes, and that's that 1991 is about the time when I was uh, doing my gap year was in 1992. So really when I was doing my gap year, he was one year old into his new venture. Um, and any help he could get, he wanted. So I guess when I did the, the, the one year um, training on the various technologies, uh, halfway through actually, after six months, because I was doing it during the day, as a, as a um, classes during the day, he actually suggested, why don't you do evening classes? Because there was an option. You do those who are doing day classes because they didn't have jobs like me at that time. Okay. Or there were those who would do evening classes. So they would work by day uh, from eight to four and then come to school or the evening classes in the college and be in college from five to eight p.m., right? Um, so and yes, in between, I changed. Okay, and what a wonderful training ground. Oh yes, uh, I couldn't wish for it in a different way, you're right. Um, very many, today, I'll give an example. Today, we get a lot of letters from universities to take in fourth year students in what they call internships. Um, and they really, I get from at least three different universities around uh, Nairobi. They really trend and Kai, please just take this student. They're a fourth year student. Give them a feel for what it is to work, right? And it's only three months. It's always a three month program. They don't ask you to take them forever unless you want to keep them. Right, right, right. Um, they, 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 they try and convince you that they need, they need these three months and it's critical for their final grade. Remember, it's a fourth year of a, of a degree class and they need it for their fourth year assessment. They will have to prepare a report. Um, and I get more requests than I can offer. You and know, accept, I, abs I, yes. I, and accept, yes. Yeah. So, so for me, what you're saying is this. I was very fortunate because I didn't even know then that the fact that I can work, then rush to school in the evenings, I was getting a bonus. And I was getting the opportunity to really take some of that learning and maybe see how I can use it during the day in, in, in the actual work environment. And it's such an environment of truth. That's what I call it, because the real world is the real world. And as much as books can tell us in case studies and different examples, how it was maybe a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, there's nothing like being in it to see that this is how you make the business work. And it is sometimes yeah. the, the simplest things that you have to do repeatedly, like the sales calls or the receivables yeah. or the updating <laughs> of, you know, that it's the constant tasks or retaining new talent or hiring and interviewing mm. and, and yes, and I also just wanted to, to highlight before we, we go on to the next question is um, I think a part of the training is also as a young person absorbing, uh, watching your dad board the airplane, watching your dad go to the airport, because that's also part mm. of, of 
you know, thinking about, um, you know, what it could look like and, yeah. and what it does look like in, in the, so, I mean, I remember growing up and, and also, you know, watching my dad at work and, and I think it's a very good and realistic reference point. Mm. It's very true. You know, like you're saying, as a kid or as a child, you can only, your imagination can only take you places. So when you go to the airport, first you get this excitement that this is the place where people board this big vehicle and it goes zoop into the sky. And then you don't see or hear of them for a few days, a week, two weeks. And then they come back and they've got stories and, and they've got goody goodies. You know? Yes. But your mind, <laughs> like you said, your mind is just wondering, so what, what exactly happens on the other side of when that plane lands? You know? Right, right. Um, and yes, that imagination is good. It's good for... for Inspiration. Um, it, it, it's, it's exactly. Yeah. Okay, so there you are, and you've gone off uh, in your gap year. And, and would you tell the short story about when you had to negotiate your initial salary with your dad? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 like I mentioned, after six months of full-time class learning during the day the suggestion came that you know maybe you could actually be a, a good set of hands around the office so why don't you move to evening class and I was like yeah no problem I think um, and it, it was easy because we would leave home in the morning together drive to the office and I would work the whole day and exactly at 4 or 3 30 I would jump out and go pick up the college bus just within uh, close distance to the office and you know get a, get a ride with the bus to school. So after a month of working, I, 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 initially I thought I would be like an intern and I'd be being taught and, and, and had no justification to be paid a salary. But after a month, I realized, my God, it is work, you know? Um, there's a little bit of lifting here and there. I quickly taught myself some of the basics of, I think I remember that time was a, uh, an operating system called Windows 3.11. Yes. And we started selling the very earliest of IBM desktops and laptops with Windows, Microsoft Windows 3.0. So, of course, since it was totally new, uh, you had to take the machine to the buyer and set it up for them. So, you know, plug it out, plug in the cables and teach them a little bit of how to move around, how to key in, set up a password and so forth. So, and now I felt, oh, I'm a teacher, you know, I am actually imparting skills. Oh, I means I have a billable skill. Right. So you're so adding yes, value. I'm adding value. I'm not just coming <laughs> in as a student. You know? So that's how I then said, okay, let's have this discussion. That I think this, this is a job. If I was not there, you would have paid somebody, you know? It's your first negotiation. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you you would have been paying somebody so um salary and in your mind by that time you've already got an idea where you think you fall, you know, you you you've got this figure in your head. So please <laughs> come and he asks, okay, so no problem. What is what 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 is your expectation? So and you give him the figure and he looks at you and he's like, really? You don't even have a house that you're paying for. You don't have to pay for food. You don't pay for transport. This is really just pocket money. 
And I'm like, no, but it's about the work I'm doing. Okay, eventually he says, that's fine. Um, but I think it ended up with what I had asked. I think I was given almost like 20% or 25%, you know, of what I was self-evaluating, you know, expecting that this is me, this is what I'm worth. Um, but I took it with, uh, with, with, with all the, the gratitude. Um, and because, yes, I, at that time, I looked around, I looked at people my age. I mean, we had just finished high school, barely six, seven months ago. And here I am, I need a salary. Uh, I thought, you know, let me stop comparing myself to the working class. Let me compare myself to the just finished school. Then I'm doing okay. You know, this is a, is a good enough salary. So, yeah, yeah. so it was, it, was, uh, it was an experience. And I just wanted to highlight something funny that you had said that was very humorous that, uh, I, <laughs> you know, this is work. <laughs> yeah. I, I think sometimes uh, when somebody leaves high school or a certain, um, I don't want to say sheltered environment, but then they're thrown into it. It's like, oh, this is work. Yeah. <laughs> this is what my yeah. dad was doing when he left on that airplane to go somewhere. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the sweat equity. Yes. Welcome to actually walking around, you know, moving from office to office, coming back and typing out some emails. It, it's, it's, yeah, it's not class. <laughs> it's not being taught. Yeah. Right. So that's mm. such a valuable experience and, and kudos to your first negotiation with dad. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So then you move on to the next chapter of your life, which is... Yeah. So, courtesy of working for him, um, I get the opportunity about two years later to, to, to apply for a, a job with um, the same company he worked for, IBM. Okay. So, IBM was not present in Kenya at that time, but they had an office in South Africa. And in his business operations, he was working under the IBM South Africa um, office. Um, and how that relationship used to take place, there would be a, a regional manager who would fly into Nairobi, spend time with the local resellers like CBM and there were a couple of others. Um, and yeah, so we established a relationship with, the, with the, this regional manager. Um, and yes, he was also, I think, a, a critical mentor because at some point, he looked at me, he looked at my age, he looked at my dad, he said, you know, somewhere along the way, this could actually be, and I, I, I give him credit for it, this could actually be very important for him to realize what IBM is. You see, you as a father, you know what IBM is, you, know, you work for IBM. Mm -hmm. So those discussions, he went back now, the regional manager, he went back to South Africa and he put a case and he said, listen, I have many partners across Sub-Saharan Africa. He was looking at East Africa. I think he had like six, seven countries under his region. And then he had a fellow regional manager looking after West Africa. So he went and he said, I think it would be of benefit if we looked at some of our partners and picked talent that was inside those uh, partners, brought them here to Johannesburg, South Africa, trained them. So it was almost meant to be like a trainee program, trained them about IBM policies, IBM procedures, um, then sent them back, right? Mm -hmm. So he, 
in his proposal to the management for the region, they found it very interesting. They're like, wow, that's a brilliant idea, right? Because it'll also give us a way of like looking at how we pass over, hand over skills. Um, so I was project 001 in that particular case. <laughs> um, I was the first one to be recruited from any of the different uh, regions and yeah, two years later, I was on my way for a, at that time when I left Nairobi, it was for a six, six month to one year training program. Um, and yes, uh, going back to the experience of my dad in 1967-68, from the village to Nairobi, I really felt Nairobi to Johannesburg. Johannesburg is a much bigger city. Um, secondly, I'm living home, right? Yeah. I've, been stay, I've been staying under my father's roof and now I'm going to stay as an independent young man, you know? So the adventure and the excitement was all running around my head at that time that um, I'm finally getting the chance to lead my life. Yeah. I was, I was going to add that it's a very exciting time, but I think also I just wanted to highlight two things that um, in some ways it was like you're walking in your father's footsteps energetically because he left the kind of the what was familiar to a bigger adventure. And here you yeah. are doing the same. And I also wanted to highlight that how valuable it is when our parents can be mentors and guides because um, how honest they're going to be, even if it's brutally honest with their guidance and advice and ideas and thoughts, which is much needed because as a young person in a big world, sometimes, you know, we don't know the answers. We, we want to sometimes run to the middle of the football field and catch the football, but we don't know the, the rules of the game yet. Yeah, yeah. Excitement can, can, can overrun your enthusiasm and you make big mistakes. Yes, very right. yes. Right, so, so their, their guidance and their calming you down and putting some patience in your enthusiasm <clears throat> is always appreciated. Um, most especially, like you're saying, if they've walked that journey. And most parents, they have. They, 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 whatever it is as a, as a child you're experiencing in your teens, in your late teens, in your early 20s. Trust me, your parents have, <laughs> they've probably gone through it. They know. Um, and hence the advice and the hand-holding that they're still giving. So, so yes, yeah, so that was the beginning of another adventure for me where I, I the initial six to one year contract ended up being, I think I worked for IBM from 1996 to 2003, right? And uh, so that was what, seven, seven, eight years? It was quite a period. And, and I also got to do the things I had seen my father doing. Um, being, being based in IBM, South Africa, I got a role to be a regional manager. So there was a period in my life there between 1998, 99, 2000, 2001, where I was literally traveling once every two months. Wow. And I was touring the whole of Africa. I was going to head office, which is, of course, IBM in the US. I was going to IBM Europe. So I was doing what I had actually imagined or seen happening 
uh, back when I was uh, a young boy. Good, good. So what would you say were some of the challenges that you faced, whether it was micro or macro challenges and obstacles? Um, so during the period when I was working away or working for the big, big blue or during what time? Any time in okay. your journey, what were some of the challenges okay. that you faced? So, um, for one, I think one of the big ones for the period I was not based in Nairobi, um, I don't call it a challenge, but it was more of a common thought that kept creeping back was at some point I need to go back. Mm. You know, at some point I need to go back. So, here you are, and the longer you stay, the more comfortable you become within the corporate setting, within the corporate environment. So I would be enjoying the extra benefits of being an employee of a global corporation like IBM, um, the better pay, the share options, um, you know, now you're really beginning to feel conflicted because you're like, but, but this journey is really rewarding. It's rewarding. I like the independence. Um, I even went as far ahead as getting married in South Africa. So I even found a bride while uh, working in, a, in this different country. So, but at the back of your mind, one of the things that keeps creeping up is you do know at some point you need to go back. Right? It wasn't anything he had told me um, prior to leaving. He didn't say, listen, man, you go, but make sure you come back. There was no discussion like that. It was, it was more like, yeah. Was it, was it that you missed home? Was it about loyalty? Was it about returning to your roots? I, I think it was about loyalty. Okay. I, I, didn't, I didn't miss home per se because I think I had found a new home. Okay. I had settled down, I had made new friends, um, I had even found a bride and, and we got married. And um, it was more of where did this all come from? Where did it start? It started from uh, supporting and being part of a family business, right? Um, so the question will always arise when, like, I remember when I left one job. IBM, and I got hired to a, a similar role at Microsoft. Okay. Um, and I looked at the pay I was looking at, and, then, and I could tell, I don't even think my dad pays himself such a salary. I don't think he pays anybody in his company, you know? And I was like, so what will happen the day I actually decide to give this up? Right? Yes. I have to give this up and go back and out of loyalty, out of commitment, out of this is where the company that started when I was there at the beginning as well, when it was less than two years old, this is where the future lies, you know? Um, so it remained, one, that was one of the, the thoughts that remained with me throughout. I mean, I stayed out of uh, the business directly, stay, working with the business from 1996 to 20, 2010. So that is almost uh, 15 years. That's very... It, it I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, it's a very interesting conversation, the, that internal conversation. Yes. So 
and, and I think it would happen with any well-educated member of a family business that has really become successful. Um, wherever they are in the world, I do not think they can totally detach themselves from the fact that it is family that put that together. It might right. be first generation. It might even be second generation. It is family that is really growing something that has succeeded. For it to grow and move maybe even to second generation, if third generation is sitting uh, well-educated in Australia, in, in, in Canada, or in, in, in the US, um, they will still carry that. You know, all this happened. I'm here, yes, and I'm probably happy that I live in uh, this particular state or country. Mm-hmm. But all this started from people who have never lived outside that country, that small country, and they managed to educate me. They managed to send me here. They made sure I got an education, and now I have a job. So what do you do with that? You know, do you, do you like you said, loyalty is always there. Do you ignore the loyalty and say, no, I'm independent. I well, am there's, there's independent. A, I, I have to wonder if there's a, a sense of a, a little bit of guilt as well as uh, kind of something around contribution and being able to give back because... You've, you've gone out to the world and been blessed. Yes. Yes. And, and, this, and it was from the hands of your own family. It was your grandfather, it was your grandmother, it was your father, it was your mother. So, so yeah, so that was always there. Um, so two, that, secondly, um, because of that, and I'm now tying them together, whenever I went out to visit similar businesses. So because of my job, I was able to travel to West Africa, Southern Africa, and spend time, quality time with other business owners, other founders, just like my dad, who were running very similar businesses. And I was, it, was, it, was, it was a good time because I could actually see what made them successful. And when I found those successful um, critical factors, the only person I would think of sharing with, guess what? Look, this founder in Botswana has this strategy to doing his business. Or this founder in West Africa, Ghana, implemented this tactic in managing his people. And I, I, I can see it's giving him great reward. I would always think of, let me, let me, let me call him, let me send him an, an email, let me, let me share, you know, because I want him, I want him, I want the family business, I want it to grow, I want it to succeed. And, and yeah, so that was another part of my, tour, my traveling and my meeting other similar business owners. In Your, the journey. Your journey. Your yeah, journey. Exactly. Yes. Um, so... So those, that was part of it. I, I, I think then the, the, big, the big challenge then after all that 15 years was coming back home. And when it was going to happen. If you asked me after five years, I didn't know whether I was going to spend another 10 or another two because there was no certainty. So the event of when I made the decision to come back, I was now working in another country in Africa. It's called the DRC. And... I was running a ISP, internet service provider, 
South okay. African internet service provider that had just set up an office, I had employed 40 people, I interviewed all 40 people, um, I found an office and we're now rolling out a new service to the uh, residents of the capital of DRC East Kinshasa. So I'm there and I'm enjoying it. I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm feeling like now I'm actually testing myself in running a business. You know, it's the first time I've been told, go run an operation entirely by yourself. Um, and it was about a year into it. And he called me. He says, yeah, you, I can see you're doing well. You're happy. My question to you, how long am I going to wait? And I'm caught aback and I'm like, you wait? Yes, how long am I going to wait? You know where this business has come. Now he's talking about his business, right? You know where this business has come from? It's growing. It has grown. Um, I'm not getting any younger. I think at that time, if I'm not wrong, around 2010, he was about 70 years old. Yeah, and so, I, I just wanted to highlight, it's interesting, the internal conversations that you're having throughout this journey, see, uh, throughout this journey, but also the external conversations. So you've gone exactly. out to the the world and you've garnered this um, tremendous, vast, rich experience, professionally speaking at different companies and different roles and wearing different hats. And now this conversation with dad again. Exactly. <laughs> it had always been at the back of my mind, like it's gonna come, it's coming, it's somewhere. <laughs> dot, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, so he, you know, it's very difficult to say no to, to, to him. And the, re the truth is, I didn't have a permanent job. I had a contract. My, my job was to get in, hire, run the firm for two years. And then they told me, we'll see. So I was also on a contract. Um, so when he called, I said, yeah, well, you know, he has a point. You know, um, I, I have my family living back in South Africa. I'm now doing anything and anything outside. Uh, to, 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 yes, of course, enhance my career. But his, his point is valid. A 70-year-old running a tech company in this day and age, I mean, yeah, it's not going to be that easy. So I told him, okay, look, Dad, um, let me think about it. And I think I resigned within three to four months from that discussion. Okay. And back in Nairobi uh, from around 2010 and uh, that was now me coming back and now having the next major negotiation, which you know, we were talking about negotiation earlier. Negotiation number like, two. Hey, yeah. <laughs> so what is my role, right? And are you ready to hand over whatever you consider my role is? Because he, he was still running the business and he had a partner. Um, he had my mom who was also a partner. The three of them were the main decision makers in the business. Right. And then, yes, and then my brother had an older brother who was a sales director. So where am I meant to fit in? Am I meant to fit in as your deputy? Or are you guys going to create a new role for me? Because I don't think I should come in and be told that I'm now not a manager of people or something. You know, I think I've, I've got the track record. Right, so, right. So then that became the negotiation. And eventually I ended up in the same role I've been doing now, which is uh, more like the strategy slash operations director. Um, and I've been doing it now from, uh, yeah, from 2011, literally 10 years. 
it's interesting because on one hand that bond with parents is so strong and you'd have to know that your your dad is kind of watching you as your career progresses <laughs> and advances out there <laughs> and keeping tabs like oh <laughs> my boy's yeah. doing really well <laughs> it's just a matter of time before he comes home <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, so you worked through the second negotiation. And so now yeah. you are here at this moment of time. And, mm-hmm. um, and I understand that communications with other founders and other next gens are incredibly vital to you to understand, you know, what it, what is it that they are facing? Would you speak into that need for community? Yeah. So, so very, very true. After that negotiation, which was simply, I need to have space within the existing, um, decision making and operations of the business. The next discussion then is, so, but where are we going, you know? And what's your, what's your plan? And how do I fit in? And can I, you know, uh, help in that direction? So it, it wasn't evident in the first, I think the first two, three years, I was just settling down and trying to show that, you know, I could bring in new ideas and steer direction strategically towards um, uh, activities of revenue that could bring returns. Mm-hmm. Eventually, then it becomes okay. Um, you're alive now, but you might not be for longer, right? And you're aging. So what happens? You know, how do we uh, take this business and hand it over? Do you want to give it to an individual? Because right, there's two people now in the in in, in the family, in the business, me and my brother, but he has other children, or do you want to create a structure, a holding that will allow succession beyond your immediate children to your grandchildren? So those are now discussions that he, he, he's not a man of many words, but occasionally he will sit down and he will explain that he doesn't think this should be handover to me and my brother, right? And those that's, are, that's not, yep, and yeah. those are really important conversations. Yeah, so I think, like I mentioned, occasionally he would uh, sit us down and say that um, his vision is not to build a company and leave it for his immediate children. It, it goes beyond that. So his vision is that the business should actually go beyond just me and uh, my brother and hopefully get to uh, his grandchildren. And and I think around the same time, in one of his business, not business trips, I think in one of his, uh, he, he started taking occasionally, I think once every two, three years, he take a trip with a group of his friends. And one of the more powerful trips he had was to some community in Ireland. Um, and they were on a golfing trip with some friends, but they went through to the village and did a tour. And they got to see how the, the village setting still existed. Um, and the businesses, as much as there were small uh, corner drinking pubs and small uh, village stores, had been passed through three, four, five generations. And so a little bit of inquisitive and sharing of stories plants a little bit of seed in him. It gives him, you know, if these people can actually be running businesses that were there 200 years ago um, and by members of their family it is possible it is possible it's social proof 
Exactly. So, and I think that's how he'd come and then say, if it's possible, what should we do? You know, and that's a good question to pose because he's actually admitting he might not know what the actual answer is and how it should be done, but he's saying it is possible somewhere else in the world. So we should try and uh, we should try plan and for it. Safe. Exactly. Right. And it's interesting also because when you were at IBM or Microsoft, some of those larger multinational companies, they've got a much larger network. And so now you come back and it's how do you create from from where your family business is at? Because your family business might not be a global publicly traded company. Exactly. So so that's that's actually very true. So for me, as we had those discussions, so two things came out of it. One, I need to explore what you've just mentioned now. I had, and I still have a hold of contacts of people I met 15, 20 years ago when I was traveling around the continent. But what have I done with it? Um, before I came, yes, I had used those contacts to get me a, a, con, a contracting job in DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, but since I came to a, a Kenyan-based business, and I, had, have, and I have had very little uh, interaction with businesses outside East Africa. There are people I've not spoken to for so long because like you're saying, there's been no need to build, connect and see how we can interact with them on a business level. Right, so, but it starts bringing that Exactly, no synergies. So it starts bringing that also to the fore. So are we, continue, are we going to continue as a Kenyan based business only? Um, technology being technology, people uh, using technology to shrink the world into a village, you know, like we all call it a global village. What, what's, what's our role going to be? Right. Um, so yes, two things came out of that. One, I went and joined um, the African Leadership University, um, a brand new university that was formed in Kigali, Rwanda, and they they set up an MBA. And just by the description of the MBA, they captured my attention. Theirs was simple. We are gonna take individuals from across the continent. So in every yearly intake, we have to get members of 20 plus countries. Um, so we're gonna take these individuals, we're going to bring them together. We're going to throw at them the challenges that we are facing as Africa. Mm. And I bet you there are similar challenges. What is afflicting West African countries uh, around poor leadership is probably the same issues afflicting us here in the east side of Africa. And, in, and in terms of the landscape. And also, I would have to imagine that part of the family business, one would have to think about branding. If, if your branding is different than IBM and Microsoft, how do you mm. approach brand new, what I might call strategic alliances? And, you know, here's yeah. what I can bring. Here's what you can bring. Here's how we can work together. Because yeah. it's a different, you're coming from a different platform. And then how do you explain it? And then also, what is it that you would want your business to stand for as part of those discussions ahead of time? Exactly. So, so I guess what you're saying is, what is the unique value that we bring if we're going to go to a neighboring country. Because just like my role was when I was working in Microsoft and IBM, my role was to find 20 similar companies in the 20 different countries. So there was TBM in Kenya, 
but there was another 19 TBMs doing the same thing. They would buy the product from the Microsoft or IBM. They would resell the product. They would support the product. So you're no longer have, you don't, you no longer have any unique identifier. I guess that's that's the point. Well, it's interesting. It's interesting because one of the challenges that I imagine many family businesses face is who are the competitors, and um, how do you stand out um, in creating trusted uh, relationships in the marketplace, whether it's with the customers, with the vendors, and yeah, how, how do you? And I'm not expecting you to answer that on this, on this in this conversation. I'm just bringing up that uh, it's a brand new landscape when you get to go home to dad and he's handing you this this gem, yeah. this jewel. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 no pressure. No, it's true. And he's and he's. His vision is to grow it, of course. And you know, and when you look at it from the point of view of where he started at zero, ground zero, to where it, where he has reached at that point was twenty years old, you can see it is it, it has really grown. So the question also when you're coming in is, could I do that same uh, percentage of growth? You know, could I achieve that one thousand three hundred growth in the space of twenty years? Well, if it is possible, it will not be within the same size market and it will not be doing the, the exact same things. We'll have to figure out how to do bigger things. Sure, right? and where the need is, yes. And, and, and where the need is. So, so that now has been part of the strategy. And, and as I mentioned, I figured that maybe joining like-minded uh, students who are working within their own environments in West Africa, North Africa, Southern Africa, East Africa. And so we joined African Leadership University School of Business mm -hmm. and we did a two-year MBA. And it was, it was an amazing refresh. For me, it was an amazing refresh. I think I saw a lot of the, 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 the excitement I had when I first left Nairobi to go to Johannesburg. We used to meet, because it was in Kigali, but we used to meet every, every three to four months for what we called uh, an intensive session. So all of us would fly in from our independent, our home countries, would meet and would spend an, a week and it would be seven hours every day in class, seven hours every day, but really intense. So, um, but the sharing and, and, and the networks, I think you mentioned that the networks was, was, was amazing. I mean, right I now we have a, right? Yeah, I think the support is also essential. So you don't feel like an island out there. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and you feel like if you want, like today, I'm thinking I want to go into um, uh, DRC. I want to go into Ethiopia. I'm actually saying, but I have some people I can call, you know, have, and, and I know them well enough to consult with them, to seek their input. They might not be in my line of business, but they have a way that we understand each other and they can guide me. So, Absolutely. So, so that was one. And then, of course, the other one, is, as I mentioned, was what is known as the Association of Family Business Enterprises, AFBE. Um, it was set up and launched in Nairobi in 20, I think around 2017. Um, I heard about it and I immediately joined. And again, at that point, the interest was, so this is, an association where family businesses are going to come and be, join as members and 
they were going to share. And exchange those ideas. And, and they would also, uh, those, those members would understand the pressures that you would walk in and walk have to walk through, the daily pressures exactly. of, of everything that comes with the position of, of being an ex-gen that's going to take on and lead a business that someone else had started and their vision and that vision might be the same as yours. It might be different because mm. again, the landscape is changing so fast that, you know, if you would have asked your dad back in the sixties or seventies, would you imagine what it would be to have, you know, these, these smart cities, it, it probably would not have yeah. even been a part of his imagination yet. And so when we see how Open. fast technology is changing, it's, it's both an opportunity mm. as well as a, uh, uh, <laughs> Yeah, so. you're very right. It's, 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 it's that whole transformation that makes, that brings a little bit of um, thought process to, to this, why should you hand over? It's because if you remain with your historical successes and what you achieved, it has no guarantees that you will still be able to see through the next five years. Absolutely. And that's why you want to be younger people, right? Um, you want to involve your younger, your, your children because they have got, there's a distinct age gap between you and them, firstly. <laughs> you know, there's a 30-year age gap. Um, and they probably are seeing things in a slightly different way. You know, you've got your way of seeing things. You've done, uh, built your business in a certain way. But yeah, um, it might need uh, a slight bend here and there and, and the nuances um, and the nuances yeah um, so, so it's interesting because a big company a big multinational might do well but i'm also seeing that smaller nimble fast-moving teams will do well in this economy if there is one insight that you could share with the next gen what might it be um so for me with the next gen i think it's just to keep close to the founder Okay. And keep, keep that line of communication open. I think sometimes they say we, we, we next gen, we younger generation have uh, impatience <laughs> and um, lack of appreciation of what really brought the business to where it is. Um, so to get that patience and to get that a little bit more detail. They actually they have some huge business acumen. They never went to business school. Um, they never studied for MBAs. Right. But trust you me, for them to hold on to a business and make it grow for twenty plus years, they have got some serious skill. They do because they're that's operational. That's operational. Right. Um, they're probably also good at. Uh, networking. They have made some decisions about who to pursue in terms of their network of friends. And those are things, if you're not too observant or if you don't ask, you might just assume it happened naturally. No! Yes. No, I, I think they, 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 they can tell you exactly what they had in mind 20, 30 years ago when they said, I'm going to build a business. Yes, and the steps. So... So, and, and for us, I think here, especially in, in this part of the world, in Africa, we, we have, they say our culture had very, very poor uh, documentation. Which happens uh, in many when, indigenous when, cultures. Indigenous cultures. So you go back and they say that the way 
knowledge was passed down, the way teachings were passed down, values was orally. Yes. Was through sitting down around a table in different setups. There's, there's, the, there's the elders council where the men would sit and talk. Then uh, depending on your age as a young man, they would assimilate you to a temporary elders council and eventually into, so those, but it was oral. I think the main point there is that it was through talking and, and sharing. Now, if you don't give them the chance to talk to you, because you're so caught up with the internet and YouTube clips and, 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 and very few of our founders in this day and age have written some of those really valuable uh, tips and tricks to running a business. So the only way you get it out of them is, is consistently looking for the chance to sit down and ask questions, look for the chance to talk, to have a meal, um, maybe give, even go as far as some of their friends, mm-hmm. right? And I was going to add, and, yeah. and to extend that respect. And also, it's, it's, a, it's a very respectful thing, like you mentioned, when you go up to anybody and you say, hey, you know what? You're my elder, whether it's your dad or his friends or your uncles. You have some great knowledge and experience. I'd really just like to spend time with you. Yes. I don't think there's any other better compliment. You know? And it deserves more respect than... <laughs> yes. 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 This, that gadget is going to detach us so much. And we're going to lose a lot. Um, the mobile phone, like you quite rightly noted, is deceptive in the way it makes you think you can access somebody anytime. Right. Or the, get the, the full the, picture. The whole, or get the full picture. The whole ceremony, like you said, of calling somebody and saying, I'm, 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 I want to see you. And going to where he or she is, not calling him and then say, do you have a minute? You know, no, it's that whole, like you said, it's respect. Right. If I remove myself from my own house or office and I call and I come to you, whether you're at home or in your office or wherever you want us to meet, and I sit down and I spare an hour just to listen and ask and listen. Mm-hmm. I think it's much more impactful to do that than to pick the phone and it, try it, and fix that, you know? Right. It's genuine. I know, for example, in my mother's culture, they want to see someone face-to-face, look them in the eye because um, they feel like anybody can write something down. But if you can look somebody in the eye, then it's that it's mm-hmm. a, that trust feels so much closer and then they will open up. But so mm-hmm. on one hand, it, it's great to understand that. On the other hand, if the next gen choose to not take the time to do that, then the, the knowledge can get so easily lost. That's, and that's, I think, the, the greatest, one of those fears that uh, I'm seeing right now. And if that is one advice I could give, like you asked, it is if you're sitting in Europe comfortably and enjoying the, the freedoms of having developed your career, but there's, there's, a, sorry, there's a big family business uh, that has no proper succession. Right. Um, maybe take maybe take some time out. Maybe you, you might you might eventually sell it. Who knows? You might decide, hey, Dad, my life is set. I'm staying. But maybe take some time out just to come back and try and hear him out or hear your uncle out, just to understand their journey. I think there's there's massive lessons. Whether or not you retain the family business, even just for your own life, you know, your life skills. Um, 
So connection, I think you, you said that's a good advice I'll give to any uh, next time. Try and connect, try and connect. Okay. And to uh, kind of uh, round out this wonderful conversation, what would you say is the best part of being in a uh, family business right now? And also, what would you like your legacy to be? Which I realize is a big question, but it's good to think about it now compared to, you know, in the fourth quarter. It's true. So I think the best part right now of, of, of being a family business is um, they, I think they're the more resilient businesses uh, during challenging times like we are going through now. Um, I look out there and I look at some of the big businesses. It's inevitable if they were in hospitality, they have probably sent home half the staff, right? Um, but even those that were in industries that were least affected, they still went through a process of let's just cut, 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 cut. Um, we are not a big entity. We don't have 500 or 1,000 staff. But even the aspect of we need to send people home was something we really avoided, right? And we avoided because we felt like all these people that work for us are almost like family members. And you care. Um, and we care about them. So the furthest we went, because we didn't send anybody home, was to have a discussion of if it gets to that point, we should actually all consider to take a pay cut, you know, and it was through employee surveys and some uh, uh, broadcast webinars between me and, and the entire staff. And yes, majority were actually, yes, okay, it's fine. Yeah, if the company cannot uh, meet all its commitments, but it still wants to retain all of us, then fine, let's all agree that we will all participate in a, a salary cut for a temporary period. Um, so for me, Resilience has been showcased, I think, more by family businesses during this uh, last one and a half years. And I hope through that, you will be able to see through the next, uh, I don't know, this pandemic, like we have said, I don't know, is it going to last six months? Is it going to last another year? Um, let's just hope we'll be able to see through however yes. long it takes. Yes. Um, and then from a, from, a, from a legacy perspective, I think if I could impart on the next generation, you know, just some of those strong principles, strong values of the founding generation, I think I would have done a good job because they, apart from the bravery, you know, we go back to the beginning of the of this uh, discussion. Apart from the bravery of leaving a small village to come to the urban city, they, to a large extent, were successful. They, they, they persevered through a lot of challenges. Sometimes I look and I think we're going through some of the most difficult challenges right now. But then I'm reminded of, but do you remember what happened in 1980 in the Kenyan context? Do you remember drought in this period? So they were there they, and they made it through um, and they gradually grew their own careers and their businesses. So, so those lessons, like we said, if I could just capture them, because I know they're not written anywhere now, and I'm, I'm, I've been saying this, this, this is exactly what I was even telling. I had a discussion about a year ago with my nieces and nephews, and I, and I asked them, do you all understand the family tree? Uh, do you know, can you go back 
on your mom's, on your mother's lineage and your father's lineage? How far back can you go? What do you know of your great, great, great grandfather? And I said, there's technology today that can allow you to capture little bits and sticks of stories, um, which and you will be able to then store technologically mm -hmm. and it will be there permanently for generations thereafter. So, so I think we are at that stage where we need to, I need to kind of figure out what is the best way to capture some of those uh, really valuable stories. And the that, knowledge and the humanity. And the knowledge. Yeah. Capture them so that they can be, they can be transitioned down mm -hmm. and in a manner where, yes, even the, the great-grandchildren, I don't know if I'll have, and if I do, <laughs> will we'll have a good idea of who their grandfather was, or great-grandfather, and, right? And those roots yeah, can be so, strengthened. And those roots can be strengthened. I think yeah. the other reason I say this is the, the whole colon colonialism had a, an impact that was not really positive in terms of culture and heritage being passed on. So they, they moved people around, they destroyed some of the practices that we did. So it, and then of course we moved out of the village or rather my father left those practices and cultural norms, came to the urban city. What happened in the urban city? You said it, it's a melting pot. Sure. You have 20 to 30 different communities you're living with their neighbors who some probably can only communicate to them to English or Swahili. Swahili is the local language here. But then you speak less and less of your own mother, mother tongue or dialect because the neighbor and the other neighbor are not from your home village. Yeah. And what happens to your children? They then speak less and less of your dialect and now they become more dominant in speaking English and Swahili. Um, so that's just an example of how language just becomes eroded since we're no longer living in the rural setup and we're living now in the urban in the urban village or urban city so but that's just language what about all those other wonderful things that we, we missed out? you said knowledge right um, you don't want it to vanish you, i don't want it to vanish so if yeah. i could uh, just to give you a straight answer on, on on my legacy if i could participate in somehow conserving it a little bit longer and making sure it can be passed down I'll be a happy man. That's beautiful. That's very beautiful. What, um, what value do you think you get to honor? And then I'll wrap up our, our chat. If there could be one, one value or a few. Oh, one value. One value for me is empathy. Okay, beautiful. Uh, okay. Empathy, you know, as you said, just being able to feel uh, for the next person, for the next generation and see how to um, encapsulate that in if it's in the business, if it's in the stories, if it's in the, 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 the values. Um, yeah, so I would, I would say empathy would be prime for me. Lovely. Thank you, Ronnie, yeah. very much for sharing your thoughts and being a positive role model of one, one success story, another success story of someone that is defining, developing, and executing their life legacy. And I especially liked how you spoke into what I would call the glue of love, of when if um, there has to be a pay cut, that the love within the family business prevails so that the whole group can stay together, 
employees, non-family members, and so forth, because I think that that adds to the culture of a company. And I think that's one of the reasons why family businesses do so well. It's because of that high vibration of love that can transcend obstacles and it can transcend market cycles because it is about those trusted relationships. So thank you so much. And I appreciate, again, your time. I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity. And uh, yes, I hope to continue following your podcast and listening to other founder next gen stories as well. Okay, delightful. Thank you so much, Ronnie. Thank you. Okay. Okay, bye.